0: violence per se has never been my bag except personally but in pictures as and I would like to uh, try to at least portray it on the screen as it is
1: uh, I failed and I've succeeded and, um, but all those pictures you talk about basically are morality plays I've broken a lot of fences,
0: and noses. I just do the best kind of a job I know how. uh, But there are certain people who are filmmakers, and there are certain people who are not, that's all.
1: Oh, hi, Mark. No, this is uh, season 10 of The Good, The Pod, The Ugly Side Hustle, where we explore, I don't know,
2: what are we, what are we saying here, Ken? Uh, we're exploring movies directed by people who are better known as something else, usually an actor. Sure. Uh, we're five, what, five episodes in,
1: we're on the Fs, and this week it's uh james franco and as and i'm joined by my bfff lee
0: (laughs) oh hi guys thanks for having me on the show today
2: (laughs) uh sure yeah uh thank you for being here um yeah after this podcast we're actually going to go outside and uh, throw the football around the three of us It's going to be fun. I I wore
0: my tux. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So today we're going to be covering two films. uh, One starring James Franco, Pineapple Express, which is a bit of a turn in his career. And Uh then The Disaster Artist, which uh, came
2: out right before a turn in his career. (laughs) An unfortunate turn. I'm Ken. I didn't mention that. But if you've listened to this before, you're already sick of me. Um, Time to suck today's dick. That's what I'm talking about. And we are, yeah, speaking of, speaking of people too old to be dating high schoolers, we are not going to get into detail about James Franco's, um, off screen issues by talking about these movies. And, uh, I think they're both fine movies and he's, he does a good job in both. Um, it's not an endorsement of any of that. And we're just not going to discuss it. This is about him as an actor and a director. Right. As, yeah. Unless you guys, As unless you guys possible. want to get into it, all right?
0: No, no,
2: no. Okay, no, not let's, at all.
0: Let's not go there. That's
2: a that's a different podcast uh, about the movies. We talked about Woody Allen. Uh, I mean Clint Eastwood. For Christ's sake, we did all of his <laughs> movies, and he has his issues off screen. Um,
1: not to excuse it by it's a different generation, but Franco is our generation, right? I mean, he's was born in seventy eight, so he should be even more attentive. To, and sympathetic to what's going on he around him. Better. He should know better. He should know better.
2: he has people who came up with him at the same time, particularly his uh, co-star in both of these movies, um, who never had those issues. Correct. So there's, yeah, there's no excuse.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: so two-time Golden Globe winner, James Franco. Wait, Can I guess what he won the Golden Globes for? No. No. Uh, <laughs> Best supporting actor in Spider-Man 2. Um, Right? Uh, Did I get it? Did I get one of them? You
1: might have gotten it. Yeah. Go ahead and see if you can go for both.
2: Um, It's not Freaks and Geeks. Oh, he, he got a, a Golden Globe for being in Sonny, the Nicholas Cage directed <laughs> movie, which we, we may we will probably discuss later. We will this probably season.
1: discuss. Uh, that might be a little too much Franco for <laughs> one season, but we'll still try and do it. Uh, uh-huh. No, uh, for his portrayal of in a television movie, um, James Dean. Correct. In two thousand. Ah,
2: okay. And what else? And I thought this film. Pineapple Express or Disaster Artist? Disaster Artist. Disaster Artist. Okay, yeah, I, I can see that as director or as as actor. Best actor or in
1: musical or comedy. Let me make you know what. Actually, I was completely wrong. I got my wires crossed. It was Pineapple Express. And okay, you got the second one for.
2: Okay. Hmm. Um, no shade on that. Even though the Golden Globes, as we knew them, no longer exist, they dissolve the foreign press corps as we know it. Because everybody kept making fun of it and nobody wanted to be at the ceremony. That's also another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Pineapple Express. Thomas, do you have anything that these two movies have in common for us? Well let me I I'd just like to give a quick Franco overview.
0: I have a common oh.
2: denominator. Oh, you do?
1: As well? Okay, cool. <laughs> jump in. Um so but uh yeah so Franco uh, I think really got to start uh with Freaks and geeks, which i hadn't i didn't really watch until the aughts, until it had already come off the show and Have you ever seen it babe? I can't remember if you'd
0: Freaks and geeks yeah, I have not
1: uh it's quite good it's a lot of the same creative team um that you'll see with like this is the end and okay. just that that troop um
2: well both of these movies and both of, uh, as well yeah, both of these movies. Uh, Judd Apatow and Paul Feig, um, both of whom have gone on to direct huge movies and a few turds, um, were the creative minds behind Freaks and Geeks.
1: And it only ran for two seasons, if I remember right, like ninety-eight and ninety-nine. It um, ran
2: for one season over okay. ninety-eight. Uh, uh, okay, has yeah. one of the best, one of the best one-and-done seasons ever, and the last episode is has become one of the best series finales ever. Um, yeah, Freaks and Geeks is a classic. and
1: Oh, I just sometimes go in my head where Martin Starr does, where he talks about, like, sometimes he just watches movies when th- bad things are going on, and he just goes into his uh-huh. mind palace. Uh, yeah, it's uh-huh. a very charming show <laughs> uh, set in the late 70s. Um, and then, uh, so from there, Franco started to do, like, these serious films after Spider-Man. Like, after Spider-Man, uh, he got his break in Spider-Man being uh, – defoe's
2: son, right? Uh Harry Osborne or what's his name? Harry? Osborne the Younger. Uh yeah, whatever his name is. He would go on
1: to do like work with Nicolas Cage on Nicolas Cage's one and only, if I recall correctly, doctoral debut and completion. <laughs> uh,
0: uh-huh. which
1: is sunny Yeah. Uh so from there um he did a bunch of serious roles. And I uh-huh. think at the time was like a, Le, uh, like a Shia LaBeouf for me. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I just, it, it seemed like he was somebody I everybody wanted to take down as an actor. Mm-hmm. And, the uh, and the odds, cause he just had this hot
2: streak. I think, didn't he end up being in, um, Planet of the Apes as well? The first, the first, the first of the remakes. previous trilogy. Yeah. Is, isn't he kind of the, the scientist who yeah. starts everything in motion? And then I remember when he
1: and Anne Hathaway hosted the Oscars in 2011.
0: Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. I vaguely remember that as well.
1: Yeah. Like, it was kind of hard to watch if I remember right. Yeah, it was.
0: I have no memory of it, but.
1: Yeah. And so, but yeah, by the time we get to Pineapple Express, he starts to make a turn. He goes back into comedy where he got his roots. And uh, from there, it kind of stays in that One, one laugh for them, one for me while developing like by the time he directed the disaster artist for full length films, he already, uh, uh, did 14 before all these Faulkner films and, uh, low, lower budget comedies. And had already directed over three dozen, uh, works, including a bunch of television.
2: Yeah. He was uh, a busy guy and, um, always uh, radiated in intelligence from some of the projects he directed and wrote um, and, and a very talented actor and the, the Spider-Man movies really bought him enough cachet to, to make, do some interesting work. And also, well, we're not going to talk about that stuff, but
1: yeah, <laughs> start a, start an acting school.
2: Yeah. And then the, the whole appetite thing from freaks and geeks. I mean, that was a, a real murderer's row of a cast um, in that show. I mean, you have, um, you have obviously Seth Rogen, and then you have um, Jason What's-His-Bucket from How I Met Your Mother. Um, And then you have Velma from Scooby-Doo. Who else was in it? Oh, Martin Starr, of course. Uh Uh-huh. And then um, I still quote to this day the dad in Freaks and Geeks who when they're at the dinner table and anytime somebody has a problem, he goes, well, you know who else cut class a lot? I don't I <laughs> Hitler. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite TV dads ever. Freaks and geeks. And Jay, um, Franco played uh, the stoner in freaks and geeks. Um, amazing performance for a TV show for somebody you'd never seen before. All of these, all of these kids um, and John Francis Daly, who played the, Lindsay, the main character's brother, he's gone on to be a director as well. Uh, he directed uh, Game Night a few years yeah. ago. Yeah. And that's a lot that's of fun. And a lot and then of fun, yeah. It's a great movie. And then he just uh, directed, with his directing partner, the new Dungeons & Dragons movie. Which people, um, people which like a lot. Pe- people liked it. Yeah. So, you know, a very creative bunch that came out of that show. I mean, Rogan frankly, went on to do I
1: mean, direct films as well, including This is the End. Mm-hmm. um with that same kind of crew and um uh what's the North Korean film uh
2: not the, the interview the interview yep yeah um yeah uh Rogan and his writing partner who are the screenwriters of Pineapple Express um they they've written numerous films together uh Evan Goldberg is his name um and this was the first The first film of David Gordon Green's career that he didn't write, actually. We've talked about Gordon Green before uh, with Joe. Um, During a Nicolas Cage season,
1: yeah. uh
2: We may discuss him again when we do Danny McPod, the Danny McBride season. But yeah, uh, David Gordon Green was also a really unusual choice at that time. I mean, it seems obvious in hindsight from then on. But at that time, he had done like four really small, low-budget indies. Um, including, uh, George Washington, his debut film, which is great. Uh, so a lot of this stuff had a lot of people who this movie kind of made them. Like, um, I know Seth Rogen was in knocked up or he was in he knocked up before or after this.
1: Oh, I think before I'm pretty sure.
2: Yeah. But like, uh, Gordon Green, um, Franco, I mean, and, and even Rogan to a certain extent this and Danny McBride for Pete's sake. All of them, they got big after this. Yeah, I don't know if they got better, but they definitely got big.
1: Yeah, knocked out would have been the year before. Um, yeah, so let's get from Emilio Estevez to Franco, and before we get on our way, uh huh. So putting that at the end, um, I decided to go uh, Loaded Weapon One with Samuel L. Jackson, which gives uh-huh. me every fucking Marvel movie, right. Yeah. And then you just go to Tom Holland, to Tobey Maguire's, Spider Man's, and mm-hmm. you get yourself to Franco,
2: Harry Osborne. Yeah. And um, this is the Disaster Artist, is kind of the end of an unofficial trilogy here at the podcast because we did twins about two siblings. Um, last week, we watched an Emilio Estevez movie co starring his brother, and the Disaster Artist is directed by somebody co-starring his brother.
1: Yeah. Well, so I mean, it mean, started off with Affleck, right? And so we've gone, oh, gone yeah. it's a director directing his brother.
2: And we don't know if Costner is, was actual brothers with Tom Petty could be. <laughs> oh man.
1: The postman. Um, <laughs> so here we go Two some stuff that we have in common between these two films: Pineapple Express in 2008 and 2017's uh, Disaster Artist. Uh, both have age-appropriate couples.
0: The first, well, Pineapple yeah. Express for sure, yeah. And the Disaster Artist, I'm going to say,
1: I'm going to say Mark and Tommy.
0: Oh, okay, okay. <laughs>
1: Maybe even Call the, same mom. <laughs> <laughs> You're the same age. We're the same age. Uh in both, Franco does an impression. Uh he uh when the when he's watching 227 on the television, he does an impression. And he he's does, practicing, yeah. Yeah, he's a little bit of an impression in uh the disaster artist.
0: <laughs> you mean a New Orleans accent?
1: Yes. <laughs> Uh, it both you have a picture on a wall that uh, shows the Franco character younger and it's commented on whether that's the Eiffel Tower uh-huh. and the disaster artist or his picture with Bobby, uh uh-huh. at his pot dealing crib uh, both se- both movies open with segments that uh, take place outside of the movie oh good one thanks mm-hmm. both have Seth Rogen that's kind of an easy one And both, someone has wished happy birthday. Uh, Well, I guess someone, I would call a cat a someone, right?
0: What? I'm sorry?
1: We we could call a cat a someone? Sure. Yeah, Yeah, of course. uh, And because in the disaster artist, he goes, Yeah, I just turned 14, the mom, Mark's mom. He goes, (laughs) Happy (laughs) birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then in both, I was really struggling here, Uh, but I thought this one was a pretty good one. A drug dealer pulls a gun. Uh, Yes. Yeah, we'll allow it. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. What'd you come up with?
0: Oh, to me, it just spoke of like um, male friendships. Oh. The obvious. (laughs) But um, kind of some tricky male friendships, like maybe some unhealthy dynamics. Does that that speak to you and Ken? Is there any... Unhealthy I was actually, yeah, totally, because
2: I was actually thinking about Rogan and Franco in their mainstream, how pervasive that exact theme you're talking about is in almost every single one of their movies. Uh, almost every Rogan movie that he wrote with um, uh, Goldberg, uh, that that's the theme. It's about friends, and then there's a, a late second act turn where they separate, and then they realize they're BFFs by the end.
0: They're better together. I mean, this is all. the end.
2: Was like that. Uh, the interview was like that. Um, probably a couple others. I'm not. I'm not remembering.
1: Uh, Ken wasn't my dealer, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> Pineapple Express, 2008. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the year that PWS Anderson was directing Death Race, and you have Bigelow directing Hurt Locker. But for the pod. We have doubt and Mamma Mia. Oh,
0: Mamma Mia, what a Woo! what a film!
1: Uh, Big year. Changeling, which we just watched last night, which
2: was
0: yeah phenomenal, I feel like we right? Need a our yeah. own podcast on that,
2: <laughs> right? Whatever happened to the dude playing the guy who uh, uh, got killed? The the guy that was um, the murderer, the execute executed. Yeah, that scene where he's executed. Wow. Yeah, there were some very
0: good. difficult scenes in that movie. Uh, yeah. Yeah feel Like, I need some therapy after it.
1: <laughs> uh, Grand Torino, and of course, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Woo! the
2: Crystal Skull. Classic, love it, one of my favorites. Um, I was actually going to see the, the new Indiana Jones today, but I had this podcast I had to record, mm. so.
0: so I'm sorry, I, Paramount. I'm sure Pictures. That gonna,
2: I don't think we're gonna go all day. I'm sure that they'll have another showing there, Ken.
0: Speak for yourself. I meant it for the long day.
2: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you really have to sit through at least five showings to get get a handle on it, Thomas. Uh, um, so your first time watching Ken? No, I saw this uh back when it came out, not in theaters, but later when it came out on video. And um at that time, like I was just saying, it, it was it was kind of exciting to have these guys that were in um Freaks and Geeks, which is one of my favorite shows. And now it's like uh, eight years later and they're like stars in a movie with a big studio uh, advertising push. And also I was a big fan of David Gordon Green at the time. Um, so it, it, was, it was a pretty exciting movie for me just because people you follow from being small and relatively unknown. Now it's like they're it's big time. It's like your favorite band uh, is suddenly, you know, winning Grammys and selling out stadiums and shit. Wow. And I haven't seen it since. I haven't seen it since. I, I like it, and I liked it again. I have I have some problems with it, but... Um, yeah, yeah so it's been I, over I, a decade was... since you saw it last. Uh-huh. But you How saw about it? you guys?
1: Um, I probably saw it in in, shortly after it came out. Uh, I guess some of the same reasons. Uh, people that I, I was hanging out with really liked uh, Freaks and Geeks and watched it with them. And then, uh-huh. uh, yeah, they also really liked marijuana. And so those <laughs>
2: two things combined it is a weed movie for sure and that actually caused uh, sony to cut the budget by about 15 million dollars um they just didn't see the huge box office potential of it um rogan said that they really thought 40 45 million was the right budget uh sony chopped it by about 15 to 20 million because it's a weed movie, they're right. Actually, I'm, I'm going to side with the studio here. Uh, this isn't a hugely artistic endeavor, like a uh, it, it's a commercial movie. But weed movies at the time were, were not necessarily a huge deal. You have what Harold and Kumar. Um, New, uh, it's a, it's a, it's, Castle, a it, yeah. it's a spotty it's a spotty genre.
0: Half baked. When sure. did that come out? It was a little oh, later. That, had been a
1: that had been a lot earlier. That been a lot earlier.
2: Yeah, half baked. Cheech and Chong was some thirty years in the in the rearview. Uh, but
1: I think half bak didn't cost, and then true low twenty million dollar range, and they weren't asking for mm-hmm. forty uh and you babe did you
0: uh this was the second time I saw Pineapple Express the first time was with you just a no. couple years ago um when this movie came out, it is it would have not been something that I would have uh that I would have sought out. I was uh probably deep into like foreign foreign language films at that time and <laughs> I uh, I honestly didn't think comedies were my thing until uh, oh probably just the last seven or ten years. Wow! But yeah, I coming of age in the nineties. I've talked to Thomas a lot about this. Um, I find that the comedies that came out about that time were just so stupid. And so when friends would want to watch comedies, um, they just didn't speak to me at all. I thought they were really just really dumb. And so I, thought, mm. I just I just don't like comedies. And then it took a few. Years before, I finally saw some some smart comedies, and I was like, oh, "Maybe, maybe I like this after all." Uh,
2: so, Pineapple Express. Uh, do, do you have a synopsis for it, Thomas? You said you had this covered. <laughs> well, uh, we we can
1: do one. Uh, I'm going to set a timer. Uh, what we'll do is we'll just go back and forth uh, between me and my bestie here, and we'll we'll cover the movie. Okay. Word by word, though. I'm going to say a word, and then you say a
2: word. <laughs> and we'll- okay, and and, and and by bestie, you're, you're referring to your, your spouse. Absolutely. You. I don't want things to get awkward if I start talking.
1: Oh. Oh. Ooh. Uh. Okay,
2: go ahead. So we're just going to
0: give a synopsis? Okay, so we meet um, highly functional uh, pothead Dale, who works as a uh, – some kind of servant. What do you call that? He serves people. Subpoenas. He's a servant. He's a servant, like a butler. A...
2: <laughs> at time up.
0: <laughs> all right, Thomas.
1: <laughs> oh, that's not changing word by word. Um, yeah, he's got some disguises. He likes weed, and we visit a him as weed dealer.
0: Saul so is his weed dealer, and he's got some really good stuff it's called Pineapple Express. It's like that with that
1: other shit had the baby with this shit yeah. and then they fucked and then they had like a baby. Um, yeah. And so it's a very unique strain of marijuana, which comes into play later. Yes. But first we go to high school.
0: <laughs> we go to high school where Dale is dating. I hope she's 18. Yeah. But she's a senior. So we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And, and so she's 18. They say she's 18. Okay. He's yeah. got some insecurities around the uh, the high school boys that she hangs out with.
1: Because he's what, 26, I he, think they say? He's saying? too old. Yeah, whatever. he's too old for her. Uh, <laughs> she bites him for dinner. Uh, he in his process of serving people, uh, throws out sees a murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rosie Perez and one the guy the, from Office Space.
0: Yeah. Ted <laughs> Very cool. Ted, who is the one of the drug kingpins in town. And Ted comes out, picks up the joint, smokes it, and immediately recognizes <laughs> it's some of his stuff.
1: Yeah, uh, which leads us to uh, hitman, two hitmen. Which, hey, uh-huh. uh, isn't that a trope? Uh, two buddy hitmen uh, going two around in a row, trying to trying to find shakedown. Who this person is? Uh all of it leads to a big gun battle at the end.
0: And we've got some Asians. Yeah. From somewhere in a- Asia. Indescri-
1: <laughs> I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, and they uh are all holed up in a warehouse after Danny McBride uh gets beat up and interrogated and multiple shot times. Several times shots several times rallies <laughs> Drives a daywoo into Yellow Jaywoo.
0: <laughs> and we see a lot of weed plants get burned up.
1: It's a real All shame, right but at the end of the day, uh the, the, the three amigos come together
0: at a diner. And Danny McBride may pass out due to blood loss, and getting him to a hospital is not a priority.
1: Yeah. But uh, Bubba, or Bubby, uh, comes to pick him up and (laughs) takes him off into the sunset.
0: And I can't wait for the sequel. Looks really good.
2: I I was not timing. Did you have like a (laughs) 60-minute egg timer on or what? Yeah. Yeah,
0: that was our (laughs)
2: three-minute, one-minute summary. I was counting in my head. All right, so you know that diner scene at the end was totally improvised. It wasn't in the original script, which makes sense when you watch it.
1: Uh, yeah. So they, yeah, they decided, uh, I, I guess one of the things I heard a lot in the commentary was that, uh, it, what well, you were talking about with it being a weed movie, um, that they wanted a bigger budget. And so they, uh, they being, uh, green and Franco and, uh, other people involved with it, uh, talk about like how long some of the scenes are. Uh, that they're too long, like the buying the weed seed. They just had to stretch everything out um, because they couldn't do all the action that they wanted.
2: Inter- interesting, because I, I think when I first saw it, and really this is this is um, something that a lot of those Apatow adjacent movies had a problem with, is it just feels like it's a little too long like we'll talk about in the next movie, which is like an hour and forty three minutes, and this movie is is right about two hours, and it feels like they could have trimmed about ten minutes from it, and maybe that third act would have would have moved a little better. I don't know what you guys think.
1: I feel like it, it keeps most of its momentum throughout it. Uh, it uh, and some of the things that I like the most are the things that are, are maybe we'd even cut or be excessive, like the car chase scene it feels like mm-hmm. it comes in at an awkward time in the film mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. uh i i like i like that it, it's there so it's, it's it's kind of like cutting like uh, killing your, your darlings like it's really hard to figure out where i would where i would actually trim
0: yeah oh i was just going to say for me the first time around i saw it it didn't nothing really jumped out at me but the second viewing just this last week it's kind of getting a little antsy there at the end just kind of you know wrap it up yeah, that final scene.
2: Yeah, the the third act does stretch a bit. Um also the the Will Ferrell Adam McKay movies of the same era also have the the same issue where uh I, I don't need a 2-hour comedy. Although that car chase I, I don't remember it being that funny when his 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 foot oh, goes through the window. Yeah. Um uh yeah, this next second go around and I was I was not high watching it. Um I I, I bet that would make it even better. Um but uh, yeah, I, I thought this was hilarious for the most part. Then the third act, it just drags a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Okay, podcast over. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so why why do you think they open with the Bill Hader stuff at the beginning? Aside from it's, he's amazing. Totally forgot that, and that is so. F- yeah, I mean, having uh, Danny McBride and Bill Hader, the you know HBO darlings, now in this movie, that is one of the funniest scenes, though, and it it. it it's not really needed, other than to establish a bunker. But then there's mm-hmm. nothing in that original bunker scene that they really utilize. Um, I, I except maybe they, I guess they were growing pot in the nineteen. Were... Okay. No, so, I, I mean I actually, didn't, I didn't get yeah. that at all. I completely forgot that
0: the final scene is the in final a bunker. That's... Not that
1: it's in a, in a bunker, but it might be the same bunker. It is
0: the same bunker because it has the uh, the suit you can see hanging yeah. in the background.
2: Okay. Yeah, and it's 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 the same thing, but like with the the observation windows are knocked out. It just looks like it's fifty years later. That makes sense. Um, okay. And it's 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 tenuous, but uh, that o- original scene sets the tone so well for the movie. Was um, the
0: in the first scene the black and white part where they was he smoking Pineapple Express?
1: But that's all, that's what I always thought. Like mm-hmm. retroactively, is why that scene was there a little bit. And they were like, the but, stuff
0: is too strong
1: yeah but i don't know. think so. like i don't
2: like they don't actually say that or come out and make yeah. that explicit
0: huh that's what i inferred both times but
2: so the the look of this movie uh the director of photography tim orr um who got his start with David Gordon Green and George Washington and did all his earlier movies and this one is a jerk. fantastic looking movie uh yeah he did, he's done ten i think he's done ten movies with uh David Gordon green and then a few with Jody Hill Jody Hill, is that his name? Jonah? No, no, the other one. Observe and Report (laughs) with Seth Rogen. That whole little uh, they direct uh, all the Danny McBride stuff that Danny McBride doesn't direct, like the Righteous Gemstones. David Gordon Green. Jody Hill? Is that his name? Anyway, whatever. Whole little group of those uh, um, Southeast guys. They always work together. But this movie looks fantastic. It does not look like a a, uh, brightly lit, flat comedy to its to its benefit for the most part
1: yeah uh i mean there's just some great random uh i mean i guess it's like a lot of of those films there's a lot of great improv that got captured and i guess they decided to use uh i guess as i was trying to think through it like hot fuzz came out the year before yeah this isn't a i mean but this isn't quite a parody movie but it has some of that same vibe to it but i think the thing that's i guess as a um artifact that this movie has two things that like hopefully well there's a it's a, it's amazing how much what uh 15, 16 years make mm-hmm. and that um marijuana's legal now so you don't have yep mm-hmm. pot dealers as much or in the same vein right so a pot movie might not ever happen again just because it'd be like Unless you're doing you're a just
0: going to pick it up at the dispensary, yeah, and then...
1: a, like a period piece, or like yeah, you get high and then something <laughs> happens, right? Like, uh, but it would be like having a uh, a movie about alcohol,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: like, that like uh, you could do that on the depressing side, like leaving Las Vegas, but it's a little weird to try and do like some yeah like uh, a bootlegger
0: mm-hmm.
1: movie mm-hmm. now.
0: Yeah, that seemed weird to me. Yeah. I told Thomas, it's like wow, that seems so odd, like having your your pot dealer that you go over to his uh-huh. house and it's like this interaction and. And it's yeah. illegal, right?
1: I mean, yeah. Like it's, yeah. It kind is of
0: still in some States. Yeah. Many. but Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny to think about, you know, just how easy it is to go down the street to the dispensary now. and
1: Yeah. And then uh, the other side of it, the, all the like homosocial aspects of the film, which like both of these films have, I think like what, what he was saying is that, uh guys just being able to express emotions yeah they were Mm -hmm. very vulnerable and it wasn't it's not done for comedy per se but it has a it has it adds to the comedic uh element to the films
0: yeah i love saul's character in pineapple express because he's just this like open vulnerable person and he like expresses how he feels and he expresses when he's hurt and I just found that to be really endearing and refreshing.
1: Andy wants to like design septic tanks. Like he has like a sc- <laughs> a sc- goal in his head, which is very
2: specific.
0: Yeah, and he's like, "Oh man, you have the best job. You get to smoke weed all day." <laughs> then he realizes that's like his life.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's your job, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I love uh, the character.
2: Couple. My favorite bit is when he quotes Susan from um, Seinfeld: uh, "Stuff your sorries in a sack." Yeah, which that's your favorite is from, part. Which, My favorite part's probably... <laughs> no, well, I, it's just that I was not expecting a a very obscure Seinfeld quote um, from the Backward episode, the Pinter episode of Seinfeld. George says it in the beginning, which is the ending, and then you go all the way back because it was after Susan died, but you go back in time uh, and see where it came from. And she's the one that invented it.
0: What was the idiom but- that he uses that you and I both laughed at because he he mixes it up? Do you I- remember that?
1: Like don't uh, no. That's something like, uh, don't kick a gift horse in the mouth or something, right? Like it's it uh, a well-known idiom, uh, yeah. but he,
0: he messes up the last word. I yeah. just found him like he's, he's smart in uh-huh. a way. And then really stupid in other ways.
2: <laughs> that's comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Apatow, you know, Apatow who plays himself in this next movie, I think yeah. maybe, um, yeah, he he said that this the whole idea of this movie started with Brad Pitt's character in True Romance uh, making a whole movie about that guy being chased by the bad guys, um, which is a pretty good impetus for a weed movie. Um, that's still one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances. Um, we may talk about it in Great Scott or Tony and Ridley Scott season. Yeah. In the future. Uh-huh. So yeah, like like the movie Ishtar in a way, they they
1: flipped roles, right? Yeah. Like originally it was supposed to be, and I think that that's one of the things that, I mean, I, I don't know if this film is as funny or endearing with Franco playing Dale and Rogan playing Saul.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't and, work for me. And it
1: would seem creepier, right? Like uh, somehow if Saul was dating the high schooler.
0: Why would it be creepier for you?
1: Um, well,
2: it would be it creepier seemed... in 2023 for sure.
0: <laughs> oh.
1: I mean, both of them aren't appropriate, right? Yeah. But for Dale, he seems—it seems like uh, because he has the insecurities around his physic, his physique.
0: I see. And mm-hmm.
1: it's a different, and he has a different presence on screen.
0: Like he can't.
1: Yeah.
0: Women his own age might don't not find accept him. him appealing, as, maybe. Okay.
1: Or at least he'd frankly, he thinks Franco. Yeah, Franco
0: could get anybody.
2: Presumably, I mean, he's an attractive man. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you you would almost think that Franco playing the character in Freaks and Geeks, who is a stoner the whole time, that maybe they were trying to avoid repeating that at first. But then obviously he does it so well that obviously that was the right choice to swap those roles. So
1: if I understood correctly, the reason that he wears a headband for most of the movie is that whenever they were shooting uh, the forest scene where they get freaked out. And he runs and he hits his head against a tree. He Is there, that real? He, it's real. Yeah. I mean, there was a uh, like a cushion, but they said the cushion was about the size of a post-it. And they said no. it had like Ow. little Ow. metal screws sticking into it oh, that were shit. sticking out of the cushion. What? Or like, well, I guess when you push the cushion in, they stuck out. So he hurt himself really bad on, I think, the second take. He got tetanus. And, ah. and so because he was yeah. he had a head wound, <laughs> he had a headband
2: on him.
0: Wow. Well, I, th- I found it to be a nice touch.
2: Yeah, it looks right, right? I
0: yeah. Cheech and Chong. Looks in yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. In, it's in
2: character, for sure. So did you guys watch this straight or or high? We watched it straight.
0: This last time. Okay.
1: To, to okay. yeah, to, uh, yeah, take it, like, to make sure we to weren't missing anything <laughs> to
0: remember
2: it. Yeah, that's a good, <laughs> marijuana affects the memory. Who knew? <laughs> um. We forgot to mention Big Lebowski when it comes to stoner comedies, which is slightly adjacent because it it's it's plotted like a real movie. Um, yeah, also one that um, also they're probably thinking of in making this because it's obviously a great-looking movie. It's a Coen Brother movie, and, and this one with Gordon Green directing it coming from uh, a similar indie background, um, there's a real reaching up and using studio money. For some fun stuff that you might not have gotten with David Gordon Green, where he's directing it today after spending the last fifteen years in the studio system.
1: Yeah, mostly. but I mean with the the Big Lebowski, you could like uh have written that as just a parrot head uh alcoholic, right? Uh-huh. Uh, who just abides and yeah. is chill. Um yeah. for this marijuana
2: is central mm-hmm. to it.
0: It is the plot.
2: Uh, that I my well, I don't really see the Cohen brothers as being huge potheads. So that might have something to do with it. While, whereas Goldberg and Rogan, at least Rogan uh is is hugely known as a, as a pothead.
1: Uh, advocate of the marijuana. Uh do we not say is, do we not say pothead we we anymore? We
0: don't say that anymore. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh I've been canceled. I've been canceled by people who
2: smoke pot.
1: <laughs> Fuck. Uh, I guess in Britain they had to have a different. They, they had to cut out the scene where they sell marijuana to those kids to make money, because they sell marijuana to kids to
2: make money. <laughs> some of the funniest scenes in the movie.
0: I I know, and that's how back as a child in the '80s, that's how I thought drug like that's how I thought you got hooked <laughs> on drugs. Like you would be out on your playground, and some shady person would come up to you, "Hey, kid, want to yeah. buy some drugs?" That's how I thought it happened.
2: <laughs> it um, just how you I, I did played. it in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> so you you mentioned uh, uh Gary Cole uh yes. from Office Base and Mr. Brady from the Brady Bunch movies. Uh but his his right hand is is basically uh Rosie Perez in the police department. And then after the scene where they sell the pot to the kids, there is another cop like a like a, a school cop of some kind, uh-huh. awesome. also a woman, a woman of color. So, like the the people of authority in this movie, I, I find it interesting, and I, I'm not sure what it says if it says anything that they're both played by by women. And one of them's uh, a woman of color, and the other one's you know Rosie Perez, also a woman. <laughs> but great not I great like, choices. It turns out great choices, and it's just different enough that if they had been played by you know, standard kind of like Gary Cole. If Gary Cole had played the cop instead of Rosie Perez, um, it would have felt a little less fresh. It kind of feels fresh because you haven't really seen that before,
1: you know? It, it doesn't feel like he looks like he could be uh, um, like a stereotypical um, kind of Ed Harris cop. Right, yeah. Uh, I see uh, that. If you get right. Get Gary Cole, so it'd make it make him a little bit more sinister in a way. I think something there's something amazing about Perez because she is so much shorter than him and seems so mm-hmm. scrappy.
0: What a force! That, I mean, she's <laughs> terrifying. Yeah,
1: that it it adds to it. Like it adds it adds a different type of um
2: uh cop presence. Mm-hmm. It is. It actually adds a little bit of of danger because you're not entirely sure what they're going to do. Um because like the the school cop, I mean, she starts to kind of believe him when he's he's handcuffed yeah, in the back. No, of he car. Does. And she's like, oh I know and who then, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Franco <laughs> fucks it up. Like, if if it were like a, a dude cop or Gary yeah. Cole, I mean, I, I don't know. He picks up I would in a way it.
1: that escalates it, which is great, right? Yeah. He has the slushy uh-huh. thing. It looks like he's hurt. And then he breaks him out. And He's like, oh, and then he steals a cop car.
0: Yeah. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh, man, this woman is going to believe them and she's yeah. going to save the day and help these two. Oh, no.
1: Yeah, it's a great fake out. Yeah. And especially after them running yeah. around for so long, like kind of directionless after the, after, uh, going and uh, the dinner scene with Ed Bigley and Nora Dunn, uh, the, the daughter, uh, the 18-year-old's
2: parents. Uh-huh. Uh, Ed Bigley Jr. and uh, who plays the mom? Nora Dunn. Mary Nora Dunn. Yeah. Um, so,
1: yeah, after that, like, the, the the movie needs something, like, needs something a little bit more, right? Like, needs a little bit more of a direction. And so, that yeah, it's selling the weed, getting the money. Like, it gives them a... It gives them something. And then it looks like, yeah, finally they're mm-hmm. gonna have this rescue, and that's gonna be the rest of the film. The film's gonna go a radically different direction. And now it continues on exactly as it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh to the same to the same conclusion. Um the uh so the Asian gang, they changed the ethnicity of uh the mafia <laughs> multiple times. Uh-huh. Uh so that like the uh guy who's getting um his pedicure. Uh-huh. Uh, learned his lines I think in Korean so he can God. say them, and then they're like, "Oh wait, no, you're Japanese now," and then oh, they changed Jesus. it again, and then it didn't matter. Like they said, so, "We're just saying your lines however we were gonna say them the first time we're just gonna <laughs> dub <laughs> over it whenever we
2: want." Okay. <laughs> so uh, it would have been funnier if they had just kept it all those like, um, I guess it, maybe it wouldn't be funny to some people.
0: We wouldn't have known the difference, but though. all the different,
1: I all would. the different, uh, yeah, it's just the Asian gang, and so it's all the, yeah. uh, all, the all the countries, a
0: Russians in there. <laughs> it's like the event, <laughs> it's Indian. the offenders of Asian yeah. gangs,
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, I so can we back up to last week, uh, or last episode? We was at is? work, yes. Men at Work and Pineapple Express have so many similarities to them, um. Not a whole lot, but in the overall structure, if you squint at it, it's the two guys. Um, they have a third, who kind of is becomes a third part of their party with um, Keith David. Uh, you have two two killers looking for them, and then a, a henchman at the top, who has his few scenes of growling and snarling. Um, you have cops, who are, are kind of funny but also kind of menacing. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, the finale takes place at uh, a slightly deserted location with all the protagonists coming upon in a, a fight. Oh, Along with a witness to a murder. Yeah. Yeah. Witness to a murder. They do have a lot of similar, they're not men at work is terrible. It is so uh, bad. <laughs> and pineapple express is quite good. It, it's funny how it's the details that matter. It's the, you know, it's it's the writing that matters. It's the director that matters, and basic plots can be recycled.
1: Here, here. So, uh, anything else that we need to say? I mean, Franco, like you said, just shows this this deep vulnerableness, sincerity. Like, I, I, it's it's hard to. I mean, I guess you could put a lot of different people in that role, but mm-hmm. it's, it's interest It's interesting to.
2: I think his take might be the best. His, his character is the one indelible character. I mean, Seth Rogen's kind of playing the same part he usually plays. Uh, but Franco is really the the lasting character that I think when people think of this movie, that's who they're going to think of. Yeah. Uh, and maybe also Danny McBride. We haven't talked enough about Danny McBride. <laughs> he He's so baby-faced here. Obviously, he's worked with Gordon Green a ton. Um, Gordon Green's directed a ton of Eastbound and Down, Vice Principals, Righteous Gemstones. He is full on Danny McBride in a couple scenes where he is just basically improvising and being Danny McBride. Um, it's weird seeing him 15 years later, like in The Righteous Gemstones, where that whole comedic persona is like in full flower. Yeah, I love Danny McBride. I know he's an acquired taste and Thomas. You you like him as well. Lee, are you a fan?
0: Um, not particularly. I mean, I like him okay. Um, he's
2: one of your favorite parts in This is the End, right?
0: I don't remember that movie very well.
1: Um, where the rapture happens?
0: Yeah, I don't remember that movie very well. <laughs> um, marijuana makes you forget things, apparently. Um, but yeah, we've we've seen some Eastbound and Down. He reminds me—I don't know—he's a little too southern. Like he reminds me of a lot of guys that I grew up with, and he's very convincing as like a southern dude, <laughs> and. Uh, That kind of drives me crazy. Yeah. Would it
1: surprise you to learn that he's Portuguese? (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It would be too. It's not true. Um, Yeah. I think the only other thing I thought about of of this film was that it's like Point Break with the subtextual subtitles on. Uh Uh-huh. You just have like the bromance explicitly stated on the screen sometimes with, uh, you know, jokes about flating each other.
2: Uh huh, yeah. Mhm. Good jokes. Uh, is it's a good time to mention our sponsor this week? It's a v- very coincidental because they did they did um, Pacific Pot Consolidated Growers has a special good the Pot and the ugly uh, strain of marijuana being sold in uh, the Portland metro area. It's called Dirty Toot Toot Harry, and it's mostly based on the first seasons that we did of Clint Eastwood. But um, it's pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, next time you guys are over, I'll, uh, I'll let you have some. Make one of those cross joints for
0: us? Definitely. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Um, it, it They come pre-rolled, and you never know if um, there's five or six in the tin. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dirty hairy joke. That's all I got. Um, are we going to say that we have a moratorium on Google reviews until Jack returns?
1: Uh, well, he could try and edit that I just out, said it. but he, he never I will. Just said it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Jack, we're not doing Googles anymore. Cause it's just not funny unless you do them. Um, if you're still around, if Paris hasn't burned to the ground by then.
0: <laughs> wow. That's dark.
2: Yeah. Nothing to do with Jack. He's in Paris minding his own business. Are
0: we sure about that? The timing um, seems a little uncanny.
2: I thought he was going there to
1: promote the new Indiana Jones movie.
2: Yes, to all of those. He started the riots. He's promoting Indiana Jones. Um, who knows? By the time this episode comes out, he might be back in the States, given our Deported. current timeline. <laughs> Deported. Yeah. Brought home in disgrace. Yeah. Um, like Paul McCartney when he was arrested in Japan for marijuana. Different times. But not in Japan. I sure think he still get, get arrested. He's been a month there,
1: right? Paul McCartney? We'll save that.
2: Yeah, we'll save that for our uh, post-Beatles in Movies podcast. What's it called? What are we going to call it? Hey Pod. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Gabby Road. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Lee. What's your name?
0: Don't have one. Sorry. Uh, Yeah, I'm not quick on my feet like you guys.
2: uh, Okay. Thomas makes up Um, for it, though.
0: I'll have I'll yeah. have one like I, later on, and I'll be like, "Oh my god, I should have said well, this thing."
1: What you should do is right when you think of it to say it out loud, no matter what else we're doing, and
2: then uh, Jack will just edit it back in. Just edit it back in. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. Unless I'm talking about like when my mom died, that would be bad timing. It's like, and then, and then, and then, all of a sudden, you have like, um, let it pod. <laughs> it would not. It would not be good. Well, we'll we'll see. Uh, go, right. yeah. I hope you have your
1: monologue ready about your mom's death, and we'll <laughs> be back with you in just Speaking a second. Speaking of the
2: disaster artist, I have my monologue all prepared. <laughs> all right, let's take a little break. Okay. Did you guys want to start? Do you want to talk about the disaster artist?
0: Yeah, we can talk about the disaster artist.
2: Okay. Well, I think we should talk about the disaster artist. 2017's uh, The
1: Disaster Artist, uh, the only film we've covered in 2017. Ever? I think so. Cage had four movies, but we didn't cover any of those. In twi- <laughs> and then this is Bigelow's doing District. Uh, there were no Eastwoods. And we didn't cover The Post, which could have been done in the Spielberg or the Streep season.
2: Mm-hmm. Huh. It's weird that we skipped that one. Hmm. Streep, Spielberg, Hanks. Yeah. So. How could we miss that one?
1: Uh, <laughs> hmm. Uh. So, 2017's "Disaster Artist" this is the film that was directed and stars
2: uh, James Franco along with Baby Franco, who also yeah. has directed movies himself. Yeah, uh, creative family, and he does. I don't think he's is problematic in 2023. He's like the, the go-to Franco now.
1: Yeah, especially for I think horror films, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, a reviewer on the AV Club gave the film a C rating. And said it was a lousy tribute and asked, uh, will anyone who hasn't seen The Room actually be able to piece together a sense of this Z-grade sensation from watching The Disaster Artist? Uh, have you seen
2: The Room, Ken? Oh, of course. Who, who wrote that review for the AV Club?
1: I can't say their name. I'm under okay. strict.
0: Uh-huh. Ignative okay. Nev Vetsky.
2: It's it's a rotten take on this movie. Well it's not that it's not alone, me. like
1: like we might talk about, but uh okay. yeah. T- tell me about your viewing of the room, Lee.
0: I have seen the room once, and it was uh, shortly after I moved to Portland and it was here at Cinema Twenty-One and it was Ooh. one of those uh screenings. Does it it's like ten o'clock? It was late. Um yeah, and I didn't know what I was getting into other than supposed to be like one of the Best worst movies ever made. And uh, yeah, I wasn't disappointed.
1: Did you go with friends then? Yeah, I went okay. with
0: uh, two of my friends.
1: Despite it being maybe a comedy.
0: Despite it being maybe a comedy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it seemed like a Portland thing to do. And I was new in town and I was like, sure, let's check it out. Did they
1: do anything at yeah. the screening? Uh, this was at uh, uh, the 21st? Cinema screen?
0: 21, yeah. yeah. Um, this, this is the one with spoons, right? Where they throw. Sp- or is that Rocky Horror?
1: can uh, th- help me out. I thought that. Yeah, this might be the
2: spoon one.
0: I thought this is the one where you get some plastic spoons and you throw them at the screen.
2: Uh I have not seen the room in, with a theater, with a crowd. Um I have seen it numerous times, you know, at home. But did you that sounds kind throw of fun. spoons at your TV? No, I did not. Uh I laughed a lot. It is it is one of those movies. Um it's so bad it's good.
1: Yeah, it's like otherworldly bad. And had you seen The Disaster Artist before Kin?
2: Yes, uh, I saw it um, a bit after its release. I think it was right when Franco was starting to have his troubles go public. I watch it because the the, um, the response to it wasn't that great. And I, I thought at the time, well, what's the point of a, a movie about a movie? Um, and then I saw it and I, I, I quite liked it. And then watching it last night, um, I, I found it, um, yeah, even better. Yeah. Thomas. Uh, I watched
1: it on a plane, uh, mm-hmm. like on an international flight. I watched it. The
2: room or the disaster artist? Oh.
1: <laughs> uh, both, you know, surprisingly, uh, air Emirates has the room. Yeah, he no, was,
0: he was throwing spoons in the plane. It was really inappropriate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just told him I was from New Orleans, he let me. Um, <laughs> no, uh, the room I watched uh, with previous uh, season guest, Jason, at his, he used to show some films at his comic book shop later at night. Uh, and so a gang of us got together and watched like Tiptoes and this movie and other uh, shockingly well-produced bad movies.
2: Wow, that's right up my alley. Well curated,
1: yeah. Um, With those two examples, <laughs> and then later the disaster. Later for the disaster artist, I would watch it on a plane, and this was my second viewing this week.
0: Seems like this would be a good plane movie. Did you find that to be the case?
1: Yeah, like there's enough yeah. sentimentality in it, and uh, you don't need the bigger screen necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not advocating watching it on your iPhone, but yeah.
2: So do do you think uh, that AV review? Um, it's impossible to say. You don't think someone who hasn't seen the room would get this movie if you are somebody who has seen the room because you, you're kind of saying what somebody would do that you don't know. It's a straw man argument, um, and I don't really have an answer to it. But having seen the room and having seen this, uh, I think it's great. Yeah,
1: I mean, I don't know if I would have put this on if it didn't have. Uh, Some people I like, like Jason Manzoukas in it, who had promoted it a little bit, and others. Um, And if I hadn't enjoyed Pineapple Express Mm. and uh, Seth Rogen and uh, Franco and other things. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it seems like the easiest thing to get wrong would be miscast it. Yeah. And they, I don't feel like they they do. But um, do you want to give us a quick synopsis? One minute?
0: A one-minute synopsis? Uh Uh-huh.
2: Without referring to the movie *The Room*,
0: without saying the room, or without making, without um, referencing the original without referencing movie. The room.
2: Obviously, they're they're making a movie called *The Room*, so it's important to the plot. Go
0: for it. Uh, okay, so um, let's see. So we meet Tommy Wiseau, who is an acting student, and uh, he. We know very little about his history, other than he's from New Orleans, and he seems to have a lot of money. <laughs> he befriends uh, another acting student named Mark, and they decide to set off uh, to make it big in Hollywood together. And they both, uh, they both struggle initially, and so uh, Wazo gets the great idea to just uh, write, write a screenplay, and they're going to star in it. And uh, so he does. And so he casts Mark in the film. And he, of course, is the, uh, the main role, Johnny. And uh, they make the movie.
1: And you got 30 more seconds.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's funny to me is that initially all the uh, the, the acting coaches want to cast Wizzo as a villain. And he's like, I'm not the villain. I'm, I'm the main person. You the villain. You the villain. I, I, I'm the star. <laughs> And then as we watch him make the movie, we see him very much the villain, the way he treats everyone, including mm-hmm. his friend Mark.
2: Uh, and this, this is, uh, if you haven't seen either The Disaster Artist or The Room, uh, James Franco with uh, some prosthetics to make him look like the real Tommy Wiseau. Um, mostly, I think his cheekbones and his chin, and he, he squints more. Um, and a lovely flowing <laughs> dyed black hair, yes. <laughs> super uh, that he sports, and one of the most inexplicable accents that he absolutely nails. Um, if you've seen the original, because I don't know if you could describe it without hearing it, can you? No, uh, I mean it's like a
0: it's a, it's a, like a
2: Eurasian somewhere right? <laughs> in
0: Eastern Europe, yeah, sort of accent, yeah,
2: yeah. It looks like um, it looks like. How those locations would speak for all those late era Sylvester Stallone action movies that take place in anonymous it's Eastern European countries. If they could speak, they would sound it's exactly like Like if this Serbia
1: guy. and Croatia met and fought, <laughs> and they had a baby. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: I read somewhere that uh, he might be originally from Poland.
1: Hey, those are my people. And you're from New Orleans, so it all works out. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I was
0: wondering where your accent was from, Ken.
1: Um, Uh There you go. So, uh, yeah, The Room in 2003, a book comes out in 2014 called The Disaster Artist, which is one of the reasons also, I think, that some of those criticisms don't really hold up because they made an adaptation of the film versus trying to explore the psychology of The Room. Um, And that book uh, was written by Greg, the star or the Mark. Mark. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Mark in the film. And, uh, Tom Dissel, who's a journalist who mainly writes, uh, I remember, right. He writes like video games, uh, which mm-hmm. is a career I've always found fascinating.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
1: but, uh, what's, cr- <clears throat> what's crazy. We were talking earlier about like, okay, so this season we're, we covering, uh, directors who do other things. So for the Affleck and Banks, both of those times they, for their directorial movie that we talked about, they're uh, they direct other people. They're not on screen. Mm-hmm. Whereas Costner, DeVito and Emilio are all directing themselves and others. Yeah. What is weird is not uh, for this movie. Franco is both directing himself and his brother and everybody else. Right. But he's also yeah. playing with so who's also directing people. And so he would often mm-hmm. be in character giving directions that he didn't know, according to some of the cast, if he was giving it as Tommy in character, or if he was giving it as James Franco, the director removed from all that because he was in that space of being Tommy Rousseau.
0: I think that with that accent, once you get into that character and that accent, you just have to, like, hang on to it as tightly as possible because I don't see how it would be possible to go back and forth between yourself and then being that character. I would just, like, try to get in character and stay with it.
1: And it seems like, because I listened to the commentary of uh, Disaster Artist, which has both Franco's, has the two uh, adaptation writers, and then does have um, uh, Tommy and Mark. Whenever Franco is talking to Wiseau, talking to Tommy, he goes directly into that accent and grammar. Like mm-hmm, he, It's like mm-hmm. his brain just switches over and he becomes Tommy Wiseau again and his, at least how he's articulating things.
0: Do you think that's insulting for Wiseau? It
1: doesn't seem to be. <laughs>
0: like, because I know that you you don't like when people say, you know who you look like. Oh, I hate that. What would it be like if you met someone that started like mirroring you and started you know, using your, your accent and like your mannerisms, would that be insulting? Would it be?
1: Well, it's different because you're saying that like one, you're, you're making a comparison between me and somebody else who like, there's one thing that you're identifying. Okay. But if you're like mirroring me, then you're doing something else. And so I'm not too sure. I think that would freak me out. Okay. We'll we'll try it later. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah. Um, the, originally, Tommy uh, Rousseau uh, wanted Johnny Depp to play, but his second up was Franco. And it was Franco from Sonny. Huh. He wanted What? Yes. Like Rousseau apparently has a bunch of Franco stuff. He also, uh, he and Greg are really into um, James Dean. Yeah. And so, ah, it, okay. It's not just the, I'm seeing the connection. Yeah, it's just not self reflexive in the movie whenever uh, there's a mention of James Dean. I'm like, that's in the book. That's part of uh, what Musso uh, and Sisterio Greg um, have in their head. And There's even a part in the, like, during the commentary, there's an awkward moment where Franco asks uh, Greg and Tommy about, like, the uh, which biography. So Tommy, at one point, lent Greg a biography of uh, James Dean and uh, never get, got it back, apparently. And Greg would always read it on the BART, going back and forth when he lived in San Francisco. Uh, and so to that, uh, Franco asks, um, oh, was that one of the books that came out later? One of those biographies that came out later that had all the homosexual uh, allegations. And both of them just like went really quiet and didn't really want to address mm. uh, anything to do with, uh, like, James Dean probably had homosexual hookups. Hmm. Really? Yeah. So it's weird that you have, like, this kind of gay icon that you guys are like, oh, he's our icon, but we're we're two <laughs> friends about the same age. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there are other books where you can pick and choose what, what um, works best for you and leave out the stuff you don't like. That's not uncommon, is it?
1: No, no, and you, you know you everybody find like that's why you have a white Jesus, right, like everybody finds the uh, thing that they identify mm-hmm. with um yeah, and then before uh Rogan got the rights to make the book into a movie, uh Sasha Baron Cohen was pushing for it uh, for adapting. To, to adapt oh. it. Oh, to own the rights and <laughs> okay. perhaps star. To presumably play Tommy, yeah. yeah. Which might be interesting. Oh. Like it, it, it's hard mm. to...
0: I'm trying to imagine that. Yeah,
1: yeah, as I'm thinking through it, like, he's... He might be able to pull it
2: off. I don't know. If, I don't I think, think it would be as sincere of a movie. I think that Franco um, as an actor, like Lee was mentioning with Pineapple Express, there's there's a warmth in him that that kind of radiates uh, through a lot of the uh, weirdness in both of these films, actually, that um, I, I don't know if Baron Cohen has it. I'd like to see him try, but um, yeah, there's something about Franco that, that there's a warmth to him um, that the camera seems to pull out. Yeah, he's perfect here, I think.
0: I'm imagining like Nicolas Cage in that role.
1: Yeah, I mean, he mm-hmm. does have a New Orleans accent.
0: He does have a New Orleans accent. He does. He is yeah, he I think he could pull it off too.
2: Um Yeah, um yeah, I I think Franco's great here. I don't know.
1: I mean next week we're gonna talk about another great character actor. Oh, but yeah, it seems um pretty remarkable how how much he's able to transform himself and whenever they do the side by sides at the end, mm-hmm. all the actors be able to hit their marks and be able to recreate. Uh, not just visually, because the lighting's a little bit different, uh, and the people themselves look a little bit cleaner, being like professional actors. But uh, yeah. it's pretty remarkable the delivery and uh, all the gesturing.
0: It was a lot of fun for me to have that little bit there at the end, because again, I saw the room. It was probably like two thousand and nine, so it had been a long time. Uh-huh. I watched a couple of YouTube videos of just some of the funniest scenes before we watched The Disaster Artist. So there were a couple scenes that were, like, fresh in my memory. But then to see that at the end where it's side by side. And, yeah, like Thomas is saying, they just, they nail it.
1: Yeah. Uh, did you didn't did you ever, you only watched it the once. Did you mm-hmm. notice that there was a post-credits sequence? Or
2: a post-credits scene?
0: I don't think so. Did you
2: stick around for that, Ken? Is that with Nick Fury? Tells him how good <laughs> he is and wants him to join the Avengers initiative? Uh- no
1: uh well maybe you have
2: to watch
0: it I again guess, for the yeah.
1: for the final final All scene right.
0: it's at cinema 21 just about every other week oh no not the room
1: why two why two title cards Like <laughs> <laughs> two production company cards you've never seen it before oh man uh <laughs> Uh, but I think the other interesting thing, um, so the editor on this film, originally they opened the film, if I remember right, it's about like having to, you know, kill your darlings uh, when you're editing. Uh, originally, and I haven't been able to find footage of this, the original opening was uh, Mark and Tommy reenacting scenes from Point Break.
2: Hmm.
1: And, Dude. uh, it supposedly it was a lot of fun and it's not part of the, uh, DVD extras, which you can get from the Multnomah County library. Shout out. Shout out. Uh, and so instead they opened with the talking heads and one of the reasons for that, which is great. It makes sense is that, uh, whenever they, they talk about it, uh, by opening with the talking heads, then you know that this is a real film? They were afraid that people maybe weren't familiar with the room. And wouldn't know that the room was real. So by having comedians as themselves, oh. like Kristen Bell and others, uh, talk about it, it uh, lets you know, no, this is a real film that other people exist. have seen. Yeah, it does okay. exist. It's a cult thing uh, you, you might
2: have uh, seen, but it's real. This movie could have been 30 seconds shorter and twice as good as if they have just cut Kevin Smith out. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, hey,
1: he's, he could be for our next K next time we come back around.
2: Nope. Um, <laughs> wait, are we doing first names? We could do... Oh, uh, yeah, you want to uh, slot him in for us?
1: It's good. So to of on Steven
2: Seagal. One of the notes I made, because um, Lee, you were talking about how Tommy's like, I, I'm not the villain, and then he kind of becomes the villain. Yeah. That early on in the movie, I made the note that everybody... It, Tommy was so uh, the character in the movie is almost a, a figure of fun, kind of a, a weird figure of fun for a lot of people. And I wrote that it was kind of like in Goodfellas where all the, all the mafia stuff is kind of fun at the starting. And then as it goes along, it it, it kind of takes a bit of a turn. And uh, I think something similar happens here with his character.
0: Yeah, I can see that.
2: So yeah, I, yeah, I just tied Goodfellas in the room. Together.
1: I mean, he does have the introduction. Thomas has the introduction Call me me. Tommy. To uh, in the acting class where they're following behind him. Right. And it's mysterious. Mm -hmm. And you know that this is a figure of some importance, but you just get a silhouette Mm -hmm. with his hair a little bit like in doubt. um, Whenever Mm Barrow Streep's character is introduced. Um, Yes. Just by the reactions. Uh, And listen to commentary. They actually pulled that uh, from where they say that they got, they they said straight out of Compton and the wrestler is where they decided to pull that from. But yeah, it's wild yeah. that somebody like this this movie is about a guy with wealth and power disparity convincing a 19-year-old boy to move somewhere move in, with him. move in with him. Yeah. Uh and it doesn't it doesn't seem creepy at all or overtly creepy. Like I don't know. So
2: I do you think it would be creepy if um Greg and Tommy weren't played by by brothers because there's a a strong brotherly uh, affection for each other, and it never feels like it gets into the the creepy um, groomer esque type area. That it might if it was like Nicolas Cage and Zac, <laughs> Zac Efron playing the same characters. <laughs> Ooh, wow. that's it,
0: a it,
1: would,
2: it would feel a little. It would it would feel a lot different, um, and I think that is one of the brilliant things about the movie and casting his brother as Greg, it kind of almost removes that from the equation. That's it's, it's creepy to other people, but when you're watching the movie, it never really, it never feels you're on Tommy's planet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It it
0: never felt creepy for me in like a sexual way um, like between the two characters, but it was definitely just a very, very unhealthy friendship dynamic. And so I didn't pick up on like weird sexual vibes, but there was a lot of like jealousy and possessiveness just Mm -hmm. within a friendship.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that could be that homosocial thing, which is it's not necessarily sexual, but like Tommy might be very lonely. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. He seemed
0: to me, he seemed like a very lonely person. And here's this guy who he befriends that may be kind of using him for his, his money. Money.
1: Yeah. Uh Uh, you might get upset about this, but uh, the real uh, Greg's mom is French. And they decided not to have her have a French that. accent yeah, because there would be too many accents in the film.
0: <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. Huh.
2: That, that's that's fair. It, it would be. Yeah. And um, Megan Mullally's great. She is. She's funny. Uh, not um, Tina Fey. Not Tina Fey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fourteen. Was that a discussion watching the movie?
0: Yeah, I, <laughs> I was like, "Who is that?" It's not Tina Fey. Uh huh. Will and Grace. Yeah. The alcoholic friend from Will and Grace. Uh, so
1: there's a there's a moment in this, uh, and I think that it's just part of the yeah the. the um, directing and the screenwriting where uh, Tommy's writing the room, which I guess in real life was a novel that he wrote that was about 700 pages long. And then they wanted to make it into a play and they're like, well, no one really watches plays anymore. And then they decided just to buy some cameras <laughs> instead of renting them because of <laughs> depreciation. Tommy's
2: a smart business guy. He lived um, in, uh,
0: the, maybe yeah, in Eastern Europe during the fall of the USSR.
2: And then they buy the cameras from uh, Hannibal Burris and uh, Jason Menzukis. He pronounces last name Menzukis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: so, but there's a moment there. So when he's writing it, there's a montage that goes on that, and along with uh, the I music, I love that montage. Makes me feel like I'm watching Weird the Al <laughs> story. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you got the same vibe. Uh, I did. Yeah, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like uh, to have that sense of like heroic
2: triumph behind something which is not. Uh-huh. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. Um yeah, um Franco the director and actor here, uh this might be my favorite on both counts. And it's stuff like that that is so great and and kind of unexpected. Um yeah, there's a lot to love here.
1: Yeah, I guess I was uh so I was trying to think about other movies that had directors to like biography biographies about directors, and I guess I only came up with Ed Wood and The Fablemans, but in neither one of those, White
2: Hunter Black, Black White Hunter Blackheart. I, I
1: know I've, that <laughs> film does not exist. Uh, and I guess that film also you have uh, a director directing himself in White Hunter Blackheart.
2: Uh huh. Um, um. So structure-wise, for this movie, I, I, I like that how much time they spend on the setup of of the world of Greg and Tommy. And then there's that scene in the restaurant where he goes up to Judd Apatow. Um, and I love how Apatow, I mean, if you know who he is, you see him, he goes, "Oh, it's, it's Apatow. He's a nice guy, you know? Uh, and then he, he turns. So he, it's like, uh, one of the wonder twins where he turns into like this ice cold water that is just shot straight at Tommy. Um, but it's cruel, but it's only because he also has it coming, but it's only exactly. It's only because
1: we're on Tommy's side on this idea of like taking a shot Uh and making it big. Then this kind of, yeah. uh, I don't know this positive thinking um, ethos of, uh, of like the Hollywood myth story, right. That Uh we're kind of on his side Uh, and Apatow isn't like, obstensibly mean. He's like, hey, this isn't how we do this.
0: No, he, he establishes yeah. some clear boundaries. I mean, he's on date night and it's being interrupted. They're at a really nice restaurant. I'd be pissed too. I mean, you got really
1: pissed the other day when those people came up to me and they wanted my autograph I after know, the yeah. show.
0: Yeah, yeah. you are so, so gracious. I,
1: and then eventually yeah. I was like to the waitress, like, where were you? Yeah, I, like, exactly. he, he went through a whole, a whole sonnet. <laughs> <laughs> Half a <of>
2: Shakespeare. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they said, uh, so for Franco and, and, you know, like I said, Franco's did a lot of directing up and before this, right? But he said, uh-huh. he and uh, Seth said that like the most uh, difficult moment that they had or like one of the things that gave him the most anxiety was knowing that they would have to direct uh, Apatow. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Because he got him their start, right? And now like... Yeah, yeah, he has to follow Mental their directions, words. and he said, "I think in an email, like, am I supposed to play it like an asshole,
2: or am I an asshole?"
0: <laughs> and they're like, "How do I answer
2: that?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So you you mentioned that it's like the the classic Hollywood story, and um, and that's how they play it, much like Ed Wood, where you know they're told they can't do it, let's do it ourselves, and then it turns out to be uh, a huge success. Um putting a, a true story like that and also with the framework of their really weird, mostly toxic um friendship and its ups and downs, uh it, it's really remarkable how much they fit into uh, a relatively brief runtime of uh what an hour and forty-five minutes. Yeah,
1: I mean you mm-hmm. get Brian Cranston in there and whether or not to shave your
0: Oh, that that scene was so heartbreaking <laughs> for me. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then, um, his ass wanting the oh, ass. Yeah. Oh, not having a close set, uh, having the cocks on. Yeah. Fucking her navel. He's so, um, yeah, passively aggressive towards Greg. Uh, but his motivations are, are so obvious to just any of the viewers. Um, It's a really, really well written and well performed character that uh, that is one of a kind, both in movies other than Ed Wood, like you mentioned. Um, Yeah, it's it's um, I think it's a truly remarkable movie. He did a great job.
1: Yeah, and I think both Ed Wood and this movie, you have a sense that like your main character is eccentric, Mm -hmm. Um, but it really feels like uh, like Franco transformed himself into who that is and gave it a authenticity that. Uh, it feels like maybe it's just um, Burden's uh, movie making or the star presence of Johnny Depp, but they don't feel like it feels like more like a character or a special effect around Edward, like a Mm -hmm. halo effect around it. Yeah. um, Then like a grittier or a more lived in character.
2: Um, There's another part of this movie that uh, I didn't think about when I first saw it, that I found uh, again, remarkable when rewatching it last night. Um, was we see right now there's a lot of movies or TV shows and books in development about the making of bona fide classic movies. Like you have The Godfather. Um, that was a book and they made it into a TV series. Ben Affleck, who we talked about in our first episode, is, is ready to make a movie about the making of Chinatown and the end of that Hollywood era of the seventies. And these are like serious movies about serious classics. Um, but they all have sort of a similar arc where it's like, it almost seems impossible. And then it becomes a classic and the making of the movie. There's such a fine line between it being uh, a complete disaster and art that a movie like this and Ed Wood, where they're making something that that's not definable as art, but they still end up being classics. I think it, it almost takes the piss out of, the making of great movies, because it's the making of a terrible movie. Um, and there's something about the the communal nature of making movies and and how complicated they are, and how nobody knows what's going to be good or bad. Any like well, the room, there's thousands yeah, think, and thousands of movies like The Room that nobody has true, ever
1: seen. True, but that doesn't make The Room a good movie.
2: <laughs> I
1: think even reading the script, they understood that it wasn't going to be very good. Or anybody working on the set knew that it wasn't going to be very good.
0: Yeah, I, I, I know nothing about like, making the sausage as far as like how the movie, the, the movie industry works. But if I looked at this screenplay, I would be like, this is, this is not going to be good.
1: Uh, Yeah, no, I, I and I, you would be, you would have been right. Yeah. um, But I, I think that the interesting thing is that unlike like, um the weird Al Yankovic uh, story, like it doesn't go off into its own era or own spoiler, like uh fictitious uh it's not a sound of, gra- sound of It's just Weird Owl being like doing the Weird Owl shtick to Weird Owl's own self mm-hmm. in the writing uh-huh. of that movie. Um in this it stays with reality and uh the ultimate like end is just to reframe. Like Tommy was so Never, like he he said, like he was playing Koi for a long time, but has come out and said, like, no, he didn't mean it as a comedy. He meant it as a real life drama. Yeah. And it's supposed to be mm-hmm. teaching somebody something. And when you watch the film, The Room, it's hard to understand, like, how, like, it feels like it's Google Translate from an alien. Like somebody who's never seen humans before, watched some television, and decided to write a movie about human interactions. Oh, hi, doggy mm-hmm. um, It's just like random shit.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a good bad movie, and my question was like, what makes a bad movie good? What are the elements? And Ken, do you have any any idea yeah, on that? Because I mean, we all know like movies that are so bad they're amazing, and uh,
2: so for for the room. The room, much like the the film that we were talking about, Disaster Artist, they have an indelible central character who um, just—it's almost uncanny valley when you're watching The Room because Tommy was so does not seem like a real person in that movie, and you cannot not be fascinated by his performance in it. Um, and the Disaster Artist is very similar, but in general, I would say much like The Room, what makes uh, bad movies great is the level of sincerity in yeah. mm. thinking they were doing something like the postman that we talked about like kevin costner thought that this was this was going to change people's lives <laughs> and really bring people together and you could see that in every frame um but he when it gets everything so wrong but it's made with sincerity um but if you were reading the, the postman script you you i think you could would say like, this could be a good film yeah um, so that's yeah. interesting because if like
1: I think that the difference, and I haven't fully dived into it, but we tried watching Samurai Cop 2 and mm-hmm. Tommy Wiseau's in that as a villain and it's terrible. It's,
0: yeah, it was unwatchable.
1: And I think it was like 2016 or something that that movie came I can't remember exactly, uh, but uh, it was available for streaming. We tried watching it and it's knowingly bad. But Samurai Cop 1
0: was not really good. Yeah. yeah.
1: As a bad movie, wow. as a bon mauvais, Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like can you set out to make a good bad movie and I don't think you can. And I don't want
2: to I don't want to harp on Manayam Golan Golan Globus who made um what the the Apple and and um over the top as a director. Um but those are both movies where they sincerely thought they were making something <laughs> that was really going to be emotionally affecting or if it's a musical it's going to really, you know, knock people out. Um, And they made it with that level of sincerity. And the fact that they're so bad is one of the things that makes them so, so entertaining. Like I could, I could watch the opening sequence of over the top um, on a loop. And it seems like there's a a point also in
1: action movies where you just become even more of a genre, like Cobra. Uh I don't think Cobra is a good movie, but I think it's a great action film.
2: (laughs) I think, yeah, I don't think Cobra is a good movie, but it's also a great movie if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I don't even think it's a really good action movie, but you know, when he's cutting his pizza with scissors and wearing sunglasses indoors and half the cast of dirty Harry shows up, it's good. Do you have any other
0: thoughts there? Lee? I don't. Um, like I know, I know a good, bad movie when I see it.
1: Every which way, but loose. <laughs> God,
0: that was Voyage horrible. of the Rock Aliens. Voyage of the Rock Aliens is amazing. And Apple, I think the Apple is one of my all time favorite. I think if you good have a car movies. that flies
1: into space at the end, you have a good movie. You have a good, bad movie. Repo Man, I think it's just a good movie, but it could be a good, bad movie.
0: I think for me, yeah. a good, bad movie is a movie that, you know, is it's unintentional. Like Like Ken said, like they're really trying to create something amazing. And the end product is just not. Yeah. And I wonder like, as they're making it, do they have any sense of what the final product is going to be like like are they going to work every day going like oh god i gotta f- I'm just phone it in on this one this is such a bad movie or are they like this is well this I think is for really gonna
2: be most people like like seth rogan's character in disaster artist he's he's trying to do his job and trying to stick to a schedule and everybody's basically trying to get their work done it's a job for most of them i don't know if the thought of is it's going to be good or bad Um, necessarily matters so much as if I do this, I do it on time and I do a good job. um, I can get the next gig. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like Tommy Wiseau is the writer and director. I mean, he's the one that really you have to trust that he has the vision. And at some point you either do or you don't. And I would be curious about the cast of the room as to, like you said, did they know did Tommy was so, at least even when he was going crazy, did they all think, oh man, this guy's a mad genius. Maybe this will be great. Maybe he knows what he's doing. I have no idea.
1: Yeah. Um, so the New York article I had mentioned uh, from 2017 uh, is entitled, it's by Richard Brody, who's been writing for New Yorker since 99. Um, and he has, the title is Why the Room is a Better Movie Than James Franco's The Disaster Artist. I mean, it's supposed to be like a review of The Disaster Artist. I mean, that's why it came out when it did. Uh, And what he says is um, the room with its blend of uh, surface slickness and artistic clumsiness is, for better or worse, actually for worse, a vision of the world. It's the embodiment of a worldview that only an obliviously incoherent person would willingly display, even flaunt. The room is a work of ingenious self-delusion, and therefore is a self-revelation. For all of its vain emptiness, it is both deeper and darker than the disaster artist. And then it keeps going on. But it seems like his main gripe is this. The disaster artist remains superficial, anecdotal, insubstantial, and utterly disingenuous. A work of calculation whose rigid boundaries, exclusions, omissions, simplifications, and sentimentalizing are all the secret to his success. By keeping the focus on Tommy and therefore on himself and his own giddiness and impersonation of Rousseau. Franco replicates the self-centeredness and obliviousness of the room. And I think that's uh, pretty much inaccurate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it feels like whenever I, I was
1: reading negative reviews, people really wanted the room explained as opposed to the disaster artist book of the baking of the room and who these people are.
2: Yeah, I mean, because the spine of the movie is really the weird friendship between um, Greg and Tommy and how at the end, um, really when, I mean, the movie should have been the end of their friendship when it premiered (laughs) that night. If people people don't start laughing and finding something in it that was not intentional, um, they probably never speak to each other again. Uh, so, it, by in a weird way, the, the room kind of has kept that, that friendship going. Yeah, they
1: continue to be friends to this day. Rousseau still says that uh, he's his best friend.
0: Yeah, and I, yeah. I wonder how Mark feels about that. I wonder if he feels like it's been impediment to his career or if it's, like, made him as an actor. Um, well, like, apathy. The-
2: when apatow is telling him how how many one in a million and it's mostly luck and he's not going to make it in a thousand on years on some level in a thousand years on some level but after uh, that- Greg uh-huh. might recognize that as well he is more well known than you know a million other actors who are handsome and talented like he is that never never got their shot so i mean you to take what you get if you get uh, an opportunity or or not I don't know if he has the depth as presented in the Disaster Artist to really think that deeply about it. Uh, I don't think either of them do, as presented there.
1: I liked both of these films, which was a nice surprise from uh, last week.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I I I love both of these movies. I think out of two of both of them, um, I like the Disaster Artist a little more, just because it feels a little zippier um and i don't really like the third act of pineapple express it's so it's a bit much for me um yeah they're they're both great movies and both of them feature a uh, really winning performances by by franco that really um is the gravitational pull of both movies really
1: yeah i'm i guess i'm surprised that um i mean i guess prior to the disaster artist that Franco's career, I guess he he didn't, I don't know, he didn't sell out or get put into other bigger films. I guess, like, was 127 hours? Is that the right quantity of number of hours? That's yeah. the right amount. Uh-huh. Uh, was, like, this giant thing with him and Boyle, right? Um, yeah. And he just didn't, like, he, I, I don't know if it's the Christian Bale effect of, like, not picking winners all the time and then occasionally doing some But mm-hmm. I mean, he still hasn't been Batman. <laughs> he did try out for Spider-Man, but Toby got it. Mm-hmm. Uh it seems yeah, I'm, I'm curious what uh he does have a film coming out this year, right?
2: Um I'm not sure. And well, that'll be an interesting uh, interesting press on that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he he kind of made uh, I mean, those Spider-Man movies for both him and Maguire, I mean, they kind of set him up for, I mean, forever uh, financially. And he was able to get movies made based on that notoriety. And it's interesting comparing him to Maguire that, that Franco parlayed that into doing a lot of a lot of weird stuff, a lot of indie stuff, um, a lot of stuff that would get him in trouble. And and Maguire kind of just went the commercial route in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know which one's best, but Franco always seemed like I got, he worked a lot on those um, those Faulkners. He's he's tried to get the Blood Meridian made the Cormac McCarthy um, book made into a movie for years. Um, he made a movie based on a McCarthy, didn't he? Were not we talking about this? Oh, I'm trying. It's, it's hard for me to remember. I just an early an early one. Did, yeah, yeah, I feel I feel like
1: maybe we did talk about this. Um, I'm blanking on it because I just got to see him as Alien again on on my screen from uh, Spring Breakers.
0: I had forgotten that he was in that. What a movie! What year did that come out?
1: Spring Breakers. I thought that was twenty. Shit.
0: I got it right here. Twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen.
2: It came out ten years ago. Spring Breakers. Yeah wise, And Harmony, Corinne's only made one movie since then. The brilliant Beach Bum. Uh, oh. Well, I think they just call it Beach Bum. Uh, no, it's the brilliant Beach <laughs> Bum. Um, Corinne needs to make more movies. Uh, I think James Franco probably directed more movies in his short time that he got the chance to, those small movies you were talking about, than Corinne has made his entire career. Yeah, I think. They seem like a good match, though, temperamental-wise. Um Corinne and Franco seem like a good match, maybe more so than McConaughey. But I really like Beach Bum, so that's one of us. Uh huh. We did not discuss the cast that fills out both important roles and the periphery of this movie. Um, it's almost a constant. The Leonardo DiCaprio uh, still from. Um, Once upon a time in Hollywood, of him pointing where he recognized someone like Bob Odenkirk shows up with oh, some yeah. on his chin as an acting coach. Uh, when Nathan Fielder shows up, uh-huh. like what the hell? And we already mentioned Hannibal Burris and Ooh, Jason. The biggest one you pronounce it. The biggest one, Sharon Stone. Yeah, yeah, Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone freaking shows up. Um, amazing, everybody. Uh, he obviously had a lot of um, favors or whatever to call in because uh, there are some really talented people appearing in really small roles. That <laughs> Zac Efron had to be for like the Zac Ef- <laughs> uh, aforementioned Zach Zac Efron. Um, yeah. Well cast and it never gets to the point where it feels like um, an Irwin Allen movie where it's just uh, a slew of celebrities showing up and uh, getting a paycheck. Um it seems like they're all in on it, and they're all, you know, he he directs them well enough, where nobody is too funny or too weird to to kind of pull away from the center of the movie, which is um, Tommy and Greg.
1: I think it's also fun, just musical choices in this, uh, because it's a film that uh, is talking about late nineties to, to two thousand, like early two thousands, before the room comes out, and all the musical choices are from before then. It feel, it makes Tommy feel dated. Whenever they decide to have, yeah. like, they have like early '90s hip hop, or don't they have like Marky Mark and the Funky Punch? Yeah, on the play? vibrations. Yeah, it's like, but they weren't. They wouldn't be listening to that at the time, but they would be listening to that at the time because Tommy's from New Orleans. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it didn't seem like it was uh, but... it, the music choices was so old that it would have been. Like of a different era. I mean, if this was made in the late '90s, Good Vibrations came out what '93.
1: Yeah, so it's weird okay. that they're not listening to music that would be contemporaneous with the time. Like they turn on the radio, and so you're hearing something from that moment. Instead, you're like hearing uh, Thugs and Harmony isn't in there, but you're like you're listening like Bone or something, right? Like it's like what I hear
0: what you're saying. To me, it just does. It doesn't seem like too long of a gap. A gap between the song. The songs being chosen.
1: I I think uh, it's the idea of like um, somebody, like us, getting into I I don't know. uh, Actually, I can't say that because we don't know anybody contemporary enough that's cool until it gets (laughs) to be old. Like there's like a delay on it uh, that I thought was great for the Tommy character of just not like the musical choices in it wouldn't be from that time. It's instead like, oh, this is what you'd be listening to this older thing, which he just heard or, or found is, is good or he's locked into that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm still locked into the 90s. I
1: mean, who wasn't? They're coming back. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh,
2: Franco, um, this was this was kind of a, a bit of a, a last, his last hurrah, this and he was in that Uh, Pelicanos, David Simon show the deuce, which ran for three years, I think ended in 2019, just as his star was uh, fully retreating. If that's the right verbiage, (laughs) if his, um, yeah, um, he does have some movies coming out. It'll be interesting to see him in front of the camera, how, how people react to that. Yeah. If those movies will even get made, which, you know. Who knows?
1: Yeah, man, just I know we weren't going to talk too much about it, but I think the thing that really upset um, those who brought who, who talked to the Times and would later bring a lawsuit against him was that at the Golden Globes, he was wearing um, uh, I'm trying to think a of Me a, Too pin. It wasn't Me Too, but oh. yeah, it was it's a legal fund. Uh, time's up. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. So that's like the same, maybe that's right after Weinstein, uh, all that came out in the late 2017. And that's the, whenever you had like Meryl Streep showing up with the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance uh, as her date to um, the Golden Globes. Like it's mm. it, it was just, it was hypocritical.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, as, as we've seen, uh, people even completely guilty or complicit, um, they can come back in some form. I know Louis CK has continued to put out shitty comedy albums and somehow tours without advertising other than, you know, his, his followers and he sells out like huge, huge auditoriums. still. Um, So there is a place for people to accept artists. Um, I'm not sure if, if I would be willing to, um, but it also depends if the artist is somebody who's still making work. I mean, I guess if Franco made another disaster artist and it was great, I can say I hate James Franco, but he made a great movie.
1: Yeah. I like Roman Polanski.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. I, Roman Polanski, uh, Woody Allen. Um,
0: respect We, the talk, art, we talked about the, the artist.
2: We talked a lot about Sondra Locke and Clint Eastwood and some of the shitty things he did. Yeah. Um, Yet after that, he made some of his best movies. Well, you got to separate the two. Has Gary Oldman been canceled? Because if not, we're doing them next week. No, we're not. (laughs) That's that's his O. We can't do O after. We were going to do Mel Gibson, but
1: you said we couldn't do two problematic Mel's (laughs) back to back. (laughs) Hopefully by then, uh, Jack uh, has gotten out of the the detention center and he can Uh join us for Set and Nancy. And I might push for the firm. Remember when he headbutts that guy in the firm, the soccer hooligan movie.
0: Yes, I was in the Tom Cruise movie.
2: I was thinking of the Tom Cruise movie for Sidney Pollock. (laughs) I'm really confused. Uh, Alan Clark's the firm, 1989. Ah, okay. Alan Clark would be a great season. I mean, nobody would, would listen to it because nobody's seen it. But um, That should be I somebody's 4x4. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll put him on the next 4 by 4
1: I mean, he, Harmony Corinne likes him a lot, so maybe we'll, we'll get him as a listener.
2: Or a guest. He's not making any movies. Why can't he be on our podcast? Come on, Harmony. He's chilling in Florida, living it up. Florida, man. Whatever. Man, he'd be a great guest. Ask him about David Berman, um, if he remembers any of that. Uh, what anyway. mineral street had in her purse. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so, But we are talking about James Franco in these two movies. Um, yeah, this, this was a fun one. Uh, it's weird to have such a problematic public figure and then to watch these movies and just be kind of effusive in our praise of them. Um, but that's that. They're both great movies, completely different ways. Yeah. No objections here. Uh, We need to think, thank our theme song writer, weird AI, Um, which possibly the same theme song you've listened to for the past couple seasons. Maybe a new one by the time this comes out. I don't know.
1: Yeah. It's in AI's hands.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
0: What could go wrong?
2: Um, Yeah. Please follow us on social media. Um, All the links are in the show notes. Um, Follow us on Letterboxd. Jack is still listed on there, even though he just edits. Hi, Jack. And see what other movies we watch when we're not watching these side hustles.
1: Yeah. Uh, And, yeah, if you're listening on a plane, just like
2: Ken said, hi, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Say it loud. (laughs) Um, Lee, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having
0: me on. It's a pleasure as always. One
2: One of the reasons I decided uh Lee Grant next week, other than her last name starting with G, as Thomas is always saying we need more Lee on the show. And I'm like, okay, let me find a director with the first but he was talking about you. And it's been it's been delightful.
0: Thank you. A lot of fun.
1: Um yeah, so you're just gonna pod and run there, Ken? Come on, man. We can go look at some crazy things on the internet together. <laughs>
2: Are you gonna do it with an accent? <laughs> Actually, no. That's that <laughs> pineapple can do, thrust. Can you
0: do the laugh? The oh, a so laugh. Oh, I forgot.
2: Christopher Lambert in Mortal Kombat is the only thing close to Tommy Wiseau's um, <laughs> accent. His laugh is a hundred percent the same. At the end of Mortal Kombat, when they're like, "Oh, not today!" Ha ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: so, uh, yeah, we should see if you can make that a super clip and put it yeah. up on the socials.
2: Uh, that Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> thanks, kid. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Um, thanks for listening and, uh, you know, all that shit. All right. Bye.